This past week, uh, uh, the environmentalist uh, David Attenborough warned us that the moment of crisis has come. Uh, he said, as I speak, Southeast Australia is on fire. Why? Because the temperatures of the earth are increasing. Uh, Lord, Sir David Attenborough joins many people who are genuinely worried about the issues first in the world, environmental, social, political disorder, as I noted this morning, is on the rise. It's been increasing. And this worry over the state of the world raises an important question uh, that we need to think about this evening. How should we respond to disasters in the world? How should we respond to disasters, I might even say, in our lives? Uh, the question of how we respond to disasters in the world is important because not only do we live in an increasingly unstable world, uh, but also all of us experience personal moments of crisis. Maybe the loss of a loved one. Perhaps a relationship that is strained. Uh, or perhaps issues at work. Or sudden financial collapse, loss. Uh, there are many things in life that bring alarm, that makes us worried about the future. Well, we are currently in Mark 13. Uh, we're exploring this chapter. And this morning you remember that Jesus has just left the temple for the Mount of Olives. And the Fab Four, as I like to call them, <laughs> James, John, uh, Peter, and Andrew, have come to ask a question about his prediction he made concerning the destruction of the temple. Let's just refresh our memory there by reading verse 1 to 4. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? We said this morning that there are two questions here that the disciples are asking. When will the temple be destroyed? And how are we going to know it is coming? And we noted that there is, though, an underlying assumption in that question that the disciples believe that the end of the temple means the end of the world. And we saw that just by, well, we know that from Jesus' response in this chapter, but we also know that just by scanning over Matthew Levi's account of the same question in Matthew 24. So Jesus' response here deals with the issues, as I said, the disciples will face in their lifetime, and also the issues that the believers after them will face. And this evening we are focusing on verse, mainly verse 5 to 8, which deals with the disasters the apostles will face in their lifetime. At the same time, it has meaning for us living today. We see that particularly from verse 8. Now, there are three important lessons we learn in this passage, which I just want to share with you uh, on this question. How should we respond to disasters in our lives. Well, the first thing is we need to recognize that disasters are normal. They are normal. Disasters are normal. That's the first point. Jesus wants his followers here to be under no doubt that after he has died and risen from the dead, the world will enter a phase of turmoil. 
read, let's read verse 5 to 8, just to refresh our memories again. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For the nation, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. We said this morning that what Jesus is listing here are four signs that the apostles should look for leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. And there are four signs here. First of all, there will be confusion in religion. Leaders will arise who will claim to be the Messiah or offer people an alternative path to God. Look at verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And if you are a student of history, you may already know that the history tells us that the years leading up to the Jewish revolt in AD 66, there were many, actually many false messiahs who wanted to lead the people astray. There was Theudas, uh, who we read about in Acts 5, verse 36. Uh, he boasted of different signs, including the ability to part the river Jordan. And he led many people astray. Even Josephus, actually, interestingly in his history, makes that, uses the same phrase that Theodos led people astray, just the phrase that the Lord Jesus uses here. The, the, the Jewish historian, as I said, Josephus also mentions an Egyptian who claimed to be a prophet who also deceived many people. And of course, we know this time in history was a time in which there were Jewish and Gnostic sects that are the reason, right, left, and center. So we can be under no doubt that really this is a period that very much conforms with what Jesus says. It is a period between the time that Jesus is speaking AD 33 to AD 70 when we see many people rising claiming to be the Messiah and leading many astray. So it, was a, it would be a period of religious confusion. But also, secondly, Jesus says there will be confusion in wider society with nations at each other's throats. There will be international conflicts. Look at verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In some way, what Jesus is describing here, when you think about it, summarizes every age in history. But I think it's, it's especially fits the generation the 12 disciples will live in. They were at this time after Jesus rose, rose from the grave and went up to heaven during that period of AD 33 to AD 70. We see particularly in AD 40, there were fears of war, for example, when the Roman Emperor Caligula attempted to erect a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. The rumors, the rumors actually turned out to be just that. But in AD 66, war broke out when the Zealot revolt plunged Palestine into a catastrophic defeat by Rome. And actually, as we read these verses and we read the secular history books, we see striking parallels between what Jesus is saying and what the historian Tacitus uh, describes, particularly in the final years of Nero's life the Emperor Nero, 
Uh, historians tell us that period was a time of great instability in the Roman Empire, um, particularly with many raging and dangerous civil war that followed Nero's suicide in AD 68. So this period really perfectly describes a time of wars and rumors of wars. Nations rising against this great political instability, and I refer you to Tacitus, um, um, particular introduction uh, it gives to the Roman Empire that really fits in uh, very well this period. Thirdly, Jesus says there will be confusion in the environment, and fourthly, the economy. The earth, will, if you like, will turn against the people. Look at verse 8. Uh, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Then he says this, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. History tells us, actually, that earthquakes struck uh, Phrygia in AD 61 and leveled Pompeii, of course, in AD 63. Uh, it's a, it was actually a period of many earthquakes. Uh, the mention of famines actually indicates the presence of droughts as well. And it's very interesting that the same secular historians tell us that there were many famines at this time, particularly during the reign of the Emperor, Emperor Claudia. Uh, and, and of course, that shouldn't surprise us because that is also mentioned in Acts 11, verse 28, the famine that took place. And so as we think about these disasters that Jesus has described here, and we just let the text speak for itself, we see that these disasters Jesus is describing accurately, here we're seeing Jesus actually fulfilling the third office, isn't it? We, speak, we think of Jesus as king, priest, well, we also think of him as the prophet. And in this case, he's prophesying something that history attests to. It's a great apologetic to who Christ is. Uh, these disasters were accurately prophesied. Uh, and of course, they reached that prophetic climax in the first generation of Christians with the destruction of the temple. Because in AD 70, the Roman army led by the future emperor Titus captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed both the city and its temple. When Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled, the, the nation of Israel suffered atrocities that surpassed the Holocaust in terms of numbers and in gruesome details. In his book, The War of the Jews, the historian Josephus, who we mentioned, says over one million inhabitants of the city died by crucifixion, sword, or famine. Josephus also records the actions of starving people who became murderers, animals, and well, animals really, and cannibals in order to survive. And we know the temple was destroyed stone by stone, don't we? Because except for some pieces of stone that we see today, the welling wall, there was there's nothing there. It's just foundation stone and the welling wall. An amazing structure, completely destroyed. Within a generation, just as Jesus had prophesied. So the period of the disciples was a time of crisis, just as Jesus predicted. And it's interesting that some of the apostles, like John, were still alive when Jerusalem fell. Now, think about that. Jesus could have prevented the apostles from experiencing these disasters. But he didn't. He purposed that they experience them. And this is a crucial lesson Mark wants his readers, us, to draw from this. 
No human being is immune from disasters in a fallen world. We all suffer. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that we are not immune from disasters just because we belong to Jesus. Disasters are normal. Well, when they're happening, they don't feel normal. But you know what I mean. Disasters happen in a fallen world. They're a normal part of life. And why do I say that? Well, we're all prone to be misled, aren't we? Because as soon as a disaster strikes somewhere, the internet lights up, right? And predictions of the end of days starts immediately. And we as believers, we can soon find ourselves surfing from one Twitter feed to the next one, to this Facebook page and these YouTube videos. We can find ourselves wasting time debating this and that tragedy and trying to understand where it fits into the prophetic timeline. And we forget to pray for the victims. We spend more time debating those issues than praying for those affected. And it seems to me that many followers of Jesus today seem to even lack empathy for those affected. They seem to care more about prophesying the end than sharing Jesus. The attitude which sees the great tribulation in every tragedy, I think, squanders great opportunities for us to witness to the lost during those tragedies. So it is important we understand this point that disasters are normal. The other reason we need to remind ourselves of this point is that disasters, uh, we need to remind ourselves that disasters are normal is that it helps us to, to, to encourage each other on the nature of suffering. Because if you're going to take away anything from this passage, it is this. It is that not all suffering is due to personal sin. Jesus is not giving them verse 5 to 8 that you're going to go through this because they have sinned against him. No. It's just a normal fact of life. Not all disaster, not all suffering is due to personal sin. Some of it is. But most of the time we suffer because we live in a world under judgment. Sin has entered. And as I said this morning, the world now is living under sort of it's on fire because the, the, the light of judgment has been set on. And just because we are Christians, we won't escape, escape from that. The world is under the wrath and judgment of God. And as long as we are alive, we, as long as we are living and breathing, we will feel the smoke of God's fire of judgment on the world. But it does not mean that we are personally being punished by God. God never punishes his children he only exercises correction for our good. If you are in Jesus, God, God the Son suffered on the cross in your place. The perfect one suffered the wrath of God so that you can be safe from the fire of God's wrath and judgment. So what that means when we think about these tragedies, what they mean, I think, is that the disasters around us are there, as I said this morning, they're like a, like a, like a fire alarm. <laughs> They are there now in this case to remind us that humanity is fallen. Whenever you see a disaster, think we live in a fallen world under God's judgment. This world is not our home. And then we, that should drive us to pray for the lost. We live in a world under sin and judgment. A world that desperate needs Jesus before it is too late. It needs his eternal love and protection now before it is too late. 
And that brings us to the second truth Jesus wants us to learn here. The first truth is disasters are normal. The second thing we learn in this passage is that disasters will get worse. Disasters will get worse. As we noted this morning, the general plot of this passage is that the world will get worse and worse before it gets better. That's what we learned this morning. And we see that especially clearly in verse 8. Let's read verse 8. For nation will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. He's describing the period before AD 70. Then he says this. These are but the beginning the beginning of the birth pangs. Jesus is warning the disciples not to misinterpret the significance, as bad as it is, of things that will happen around and think the end has come. He knew the end wasn't going to come before AD 70. He says the disasters on our world will continue to increase after AD 70 because, according to Jesus, what is written in verse 5 to 8 is only the beginning. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. You know, the metaphor of the birth pains uh, to describe the disasters leading up to AD 70 uh, uh, is frightening. Because it is telling us, if that is the beginning of a birth pain, it's telling us that as time is moving forward now, we should be expecting more intense more frequent disasters. And, and in fact, we can just take that list of all the four areas Jesus has described, mentioned by our Lord, and just run through them. And we won't do that today, but just think about those areas for the last 2,000 years or the last 100 years. For example, experts are telling us that international armed conflicts have been rising for the last 100 years. The terrorism index put together by the a global peace index is, is on the up. Peace within countries is, 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 is fractured. According to Save the Children research I was looking at recently, more children are living in areas of armed conflict and war than at any time over the last dec few decades. One in five children live in an area of conflict. As I said, when we look at the environment, I don't think Christians should be denying what's going on with the environment. Because actually what's going on with the environment tells us that the picture is bleak and simply confirms what the scripture talks about. I'll leave you to read Revelation in your own way. But the, well, hopefully in a biblical way, in your own time, right? <laughs> but the experts are clear. The experts tell us that the droughts which we're seeing will get worse and worse. Again, that just takes us back to the idea, to the truth that Jesus says, these were the beginnings of the birth pains that we began to see. You could take all that period leading up to AD 70 and just use that to help you understand the times we are living in now. Deceivers, we, Jesus talked about deceivers. There are more deceivers now. The deceivers in the old were challenging Christ from outside the church. But we have seen now with every year that passes, deception is now outside. Deception is in the church now. The church is unrecognizable. I don't think if Paul, Peter, and all these great apostles of the past walked into an average church, they would recognize it. Throughout this, we have said there have been deceivers, but now spiritual delusion is at fever pitch. 
and we'll come back to that, won't we, when, when, as we go through this. And now, of course, trends change over time. But the global consensus is that the world is increasingly dangerous with many frightening disasters. Don't, don't take this from me. I mean, you, you, you <laughs> wait until Thursday. What's happening on Thursday? On Thursday, we'll get the annual update to the global doomsday clock. That's done every January in this week. Every year, a group of scientists and other thinkers, they meet, they are our kind of modern prophets, they meet to assess the risk facing the world, and then they update the symbolic doomsday clock. Last year, it was kept at two minutes to midnight. A perilous position. Uh, they, 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 they actually said, we are now living in a new abnormal world that is simply too volatile and too dangerous to accept. One secular expert, they are all secular guys, described it like this, says, the human race, we are playing Russian roulette with our humanity. And they're not just talking about climate change. I mean, that's what the media, the BBC likes to cover. No, no, this is, they look at all the factors and they present this. As, as well as just, again, wish, you can dismiss that, that's, you can dismiss that, but I'm looking at the scriptures and I'm saying, what they're telling me seems to fit the scripture data. It doesn't surprise me because Jesus has already told us that disasters will get worse. So point number one, disasters are normal. Point number two, disasters will get worse. So the question is, how then should we respond to the reality of increasing disasters in our world? Well, what Jesus wants us to do is to keep calm and trust Jesus. Keep calm and trust Jesus. That's the third point, don't deny these things. Keep calm. Don't panic either. Keep calm and trust Jesus. The 17-year-old environmentalist, who I like to quote quite often, Greta Thunberg, uh, made a popular speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos last year. Here is what she said, just a quote from it. She says, I'm here to say our house is on fire. We are facing a disaster of unspoken sufferings for enormous amounts of people. And then she goes on to say, adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear. Now the world's media applauded her speech, but as any responsible adult knows, you don't want a doctor who's panicking, right? You don't want a pharmacist who's panicking everywhere, right? Or teacher who always panics. Any responsible adult knows when you are facing some danger in your life or some critical issue, the last thing you want to do is panic. If you are in a burning building, right, the fire brigade does not want you to start panicking. You know what happens when people start panicking and there's a fire going on? It's what we saw with 9-11. When, when there's panic, people jump off door building. Panic in face of danger is a bad idea. It makes us do stupid things. It doesn't, I won't go into it, but we had an emergency last year which just sent me into panic. You can ask my wife about it. Oh, I was panicking. It was terrible. My wife was like, sit down. <laughs> I was panicking all over the place. I was acting stupid. Panic makes you act stupid. It doesn't help 
anyone at all, right? Uh, of course, we justify it, but it doesn't help anyone. And so it does not surprise us that Jesus says here that in face of these disasters, when the world is getting worse, the last thing we need to do is panic. We shouldn't panic. That's what he says in verse, in, in verse 5 there, 5 and 7. And Jesus began to say to them, See, no one leads you astray. Why? Verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. We can simply say, do not panic. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus is saying to them and us, Do not let anyone fool you about the state of the world. It will only send you into unnecessary panic and fear. Yes, disasters uh, will get worse. Uh, but do not fear what the world fears, beloved. Do not fear what they fear, Jesus is saying. Do not lose your sleep over, over these things because God is still in control of the world. You know, for the disciples, Jesus was saying, you know what he was saying to them leading up to AD 70? saying, do not worry about what's coming, AD 70. God is in charge leading up to the events in the destruction of the temple. That's why he went to great detail to describe what will happen. AD 70 won't be the end for you. For those of us who are living after AD 70, Jesus is saying, do not be alarmed by the end times. You are marching towards the great tribulation, but do not worry, because no matter what happens, God knows your future. God knows your future. If the Antichrist were to rise today, God knows our future and he will keep his people. This is why I think when you look at the scriptures, it becomes ridiculous the whole discussion about pre-trib, mid-trib, after-trib, tribe this, trip that. No, the important thing for believers is that God is in control of his people. And of course, whether it's a millennial or whatever it is, we'll come to all of those issues. And uh, we'll try and knock them one by one as they want. But the, the issue is, is that time and time again, the church of God has disobeyed this teaching of Jesus. Jesus says clearly there in verse 7, do not be alarmed. But what we see in the world among believers is a lot of alarm about end times. You know, I found out this week that some have even created something called the rapture index. I was interested in being with a background in economics, the idea of an index, so that was very interesting. Apparently, it allegedly tracks how close we are before we enter the Great Tribulation and Jesus appears. It's, it's, you should look this up. Well, be careful if you look it up. I'm not recommending it. But it's, I was fascinated by it. The website says the Rapture Index is a Dow Jones Industrial Average of End Time Activity or a Prophetic Speedometer before the Rapture. It, 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 as I thought about this, I thought, wow, I just got all these things in there. It's quite interesting. Clever guy who designed that thing. I'm sure he's made money off it. Maybe not. Uh, well, it seems to me that nothing seems to take our common sense away than eschatology. Sadly, you could have a good conversation with a believer, but when you get to this subject, goodness me, I mean, it's like people get excited. You could try and, and have a conference about prayer. You can get about 10, 5 people in the conference just focus on prayer. Have one on end time and you're going to pack the room. You're going to sell out, right? Regardless of who's talking, right? Beloved, we don't need an index. We need Mark 13. And in Mark 13, Jesus is saying, all he has to say to us, he's saying to us, stay calm. 
Keep calm and trust me. Now, I appreciate that this is not an easy thing for us to do. It's not an easy thing for me. It's not an easy thing for you, I'm sure. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we stay calm and trust Jesus in the middle of a world of increasing disasters? I think, looking at this passage, it means doing what the disciples are doing in this passage. And I think they're doing three things that we need to do to stay calm and trust in Jesus. First of all, talk to Jesus about anything. You know, I love verse 1 of this passage. I hope you, you love it as well, because it's one, it's one of my favorite verses in, this, in Mark. Verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, it says, one of the disciples, we don't know who it is, he says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. You know, what I love about that verse is that it is a wonderful glimpse in the life of Jesus and the disciples. They've been together for three years now. They're just doing life together. And it's like, it's just, it's like a passing comment you make with your friends. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? It's a human remark. They are with Jesus. They are doing life with him. They are on the road with him. And even if something trivial like that, Jesus has seen the temple before. Why, not? Why mention it? But they are doing life with him. And even anything trivial, they mention it to him. Even admiring the building. You notice in this passage, actually, that the disciples are growing. They are enjoying Jesus, right? Why then that's how we keep calm and, trust, and, and, and move forward and trust Jesus? How? We need to live our lives in his presence. We need to do life with Jesus. And so the first question I want to ask you as you face a very changing world is, are you doing life with Jesus? What I mean by that is, are you just enjoying, are you enjoying being with Jesus? Are you in conversation with Jesus? You know, Brother Rollins talks about practicing the presence of God. Well, are you bringing even trivial things before Jesus? One of the encouragements uh, that people tell, I think Tim Chester makes this point in his book, Knowing, Enjoying God. He says, you know, men, most of us speak to ourselves. Well, Tim Chester's advice is just, yeah, just do what you do, speak to yourself. Talk it with Jesus. <laughs> it's okay to speak to yourself. But bring Jesus into the conversation. Do life with Jesus. So that's the first thing we need to do to stay calm and trust Jesus. We must do life with him. Let us bring Jesus in whatever we are up to. The second thing is that ask Jesus difficult questions that worry you. Look at verse 3. And as we sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. Some versions actually say asked him secretly. I like two things about what's going on there. First of all, they go to him in secret, right? This is how prayer is, good prayer. By the way, every time the disciples are asking Jesus a question, we've said this before, it is them praying to Jesus. It's a prayer, because it's God. So it's a good analogy, actually, of prayer. If you just want to study prayer, one of the things you could ask is actually, how are the disciples praying or talking to God? Jesus, God the Son. And what they're doing now is that they're bringing their question to God. That's what they're doing. They've got a question, they've come to God the Son. To answer it. That's how prayer should be, isn't it? We should approach Jesus in secret, particularly if we have difficult questions. The other thing I like about this is that they go in a close group. The Fab Four. They don't go alone. I think that's also a great picture of prayer. Particularly if we're struggling with difficult questions, isn't it? Go to Jesus with your tough questions, yes. Privately if you can. But also take the church with you. 
If there are things that are worrying you about this world, share them. If there are things that are worrying you in your life, share them with the close, with the church preferably. But if there are a few brothers or sisters that you know very well, share them. Let us ask Jesus together. That's how we keep calm and trust Jesus in face of disaster. If you're, failing a, you're, you're facing a personal crisis, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with a sister. Share it with a brother. Somebody you trust in the church. Let us together take your questions, your worries to Jesus. The final thing we learn here. Learn to listen to Jesus, not the world. As I thought about this passage, the thing that struck me most is that Jesus is speaking to them and they are listening, yes? And they will listen to him for 37 verses, right? But actually we know that means that the speech was even longer. This would have been a long discourse, right? Because I'm sure there are things that Mark has left out. They are listening. There's no word from the disciples here. But the most important thing is just that they are listening, is that they are learning to listen to Jesus, and Jesus is telling them, listen only to me, not to anyone else. Look at verse 5 again. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. We, We can interpret that as Jesus saying, don't listen to anyone else. Listen to my words. Listen to my words. Listen to the word of God. Prioritize listening to scripture. Many of us want to be experts on the end time, but are we experts on the word of God? Are we reading it every day? Do we understand how Ezekiel helps us understand Revelation? How Revelation makes sense of Daniel? How Daniel takes us back to Deuteronomy. Do we understand these things? My suspect is that we don't. And I think the key for us to know scripture is to study it every day. As the world gets worse and worse, as the world becomes more saturated with information, we need to remember it is not the volume of information that matters, but the quality of the information. And the quality of the information we need is to hear the living word of God. I'm not saying we shouldn't update ourselves on what's happening. We need, you know, you need to read the Bible with a newspaper, don't you? That's what we say. We say that for, for preachers, isn't it? Preachers must read the Bible and the newspaper and spend time with people. Those things are important. But you must spend more time reading the Bible because the Bible helps you how to read the newspaper, right? Not equal amounts. It's the Bible that will help you understand how to read your newspaper. Oh your Twitter feed. I'm updating myself here, right? We need to tune in to listen to Jesus and tune out any misleading voices. This means making the Bible, studying it privately together with the church and so forth, a priority. We must be like John Bunyan, isn't it? Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. What a legacy John Bunyan left. How about you? Do you bleed Bible? Well, staying calm means reading the Bible and that is the only way for you to keep trusting Jesus and the work he's done for us on the cross. This is how we respond to disasters in our lives. So then, disasters are normal. Disasters will get worse. Keep calm. And trust Jesus. Amen.